The Australian government's pledged $1 billion to tackle gendered and family violence, so do we need to do the same here? For that and everything else we're talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. Just a quick warning. This series contains explicit language. Episode 3, The Review. The police have appointed a senior investigator to take a fresh look at one of New Zealand's most famous unsolved murder cases. Jeanette and Harvey Crew were murdered at their Waikato farm in 1970. Radio New Zealand in October 2010. And this is a big deal. Deputy Police Commissioner Rob Pope this afternoon announced the police will conduct a thorough analysis of the file after questions were raised by the daughter, Rochelle Crew. Forty years after her parents were murdered and she was left at the gruesome crime scene, Rochelle Crew gets what the Thomas family has been asking for for years. It'll be led by a top cop, Detective Superintendent Andy Lovelock. It's supposed to be the review to end all reviews. It's a big promise for a case which seems like it will never go away. Spoiler alert. It still won't. Hello. People want that cheeky dog's life. Yeah, you fucking live like that, eh? Just stood out like dog's balls. Howdy. Everything's been covered up. This is a stuffed circuit podcast called The District. A story about injustice, about a murder investigation that goes off the rails, about gossip and whispered accusations. But mostly, a story about people. People who are trying to get on with their lives, but can't. This story is produced by Toby Longbottom and Paula Penfold with field recording by Phil Johnson. I'm Eugene Bingham. We jump on now or are you going to turn around? Yeah. We're on a farm in the same district where Jeanette and Harvey Crew were murdered in 1970. He says, where's your helmet? I said, listen, mate, my head's that fucking hard. It's just I don't need one. We've arrived in a tiny Suzuki Swift. It's a company car built for city roads. The farmer decides it's never going to get us across his paddocks. Yeah, I don't think we'd have got our little car out here. So he's giving us a ride on his quad bike. Oh, in the afternoon you'll be right. The grass has dried out a bit. So can I just get you to say your name and where we are? Date of birth and pin number. Oh, pin number. Tony Clark, we're in Pukekawa. And so where we are is on, is this your farm? This is my my from my farm, yeah. How many acres? We've got 325 acres here. And has it been in your family for? No, it hasn't. We've been here about 25 years. Um, and so this particular area where we are, just describe what was here and what's here now. Well, originally there was a dam there and uh, about 12 years ago it washed out. Um, it belonged to the neighbours then before we bought it and down onto our lower track down below here. And um, we've since bought the place and we've put the dam, reinstated it all. When we were reinstating it, that's when we found the firearm. A firearm 
buried in a dam close to the crew farm. Yep. We're about to go on a massive roller coaster ride, starting at Tony Clark's place. Oh, look, it's probably been... In 2016, he had a contractor on the farm cleaning up the old dam. He was scraping all this uh, clay away here to form the stop bank, and he thought he'd hit a tree root because it pinged back, and um, he put his bucket down on the angle there and flicked it out and yelled out and says, there's a firearm in here. And so the area where it was found was, yeah. it was dry when you found it? Yeah, yeah, very dry, um, um, and it was up. If there was a pond there, it would have been underwater when the pond was, because the stop bank had washed out, of course it was in dry land. And, you know, let's face it, who puts a perfectly good firearm in a pond, and it was being put down barrel first, and the end of the butt was plastic, and that was actually shattered on the end. Whether that was from the digger, which I don't think it was, um, or whether it's somebody's boot pushing it into the mud. And of course, on the edge of the, of the stop bank, be nice and soft too, down below the water. So someone's obviously wanted to get rid of a rifle. So it's... It was a fair way down. So you're, from what you're describing, it's not like it's fallen off no. a vehicle, someone's dropped it when they're walking on the farm. If you dropped a rifle, you'd, you'd jump in there and pick it up, wouldn't you, and get it out yourself, even if it was middle of winter. Well, I certainly would anyway. So it looks to you like it's been hidden there for it's, one reason or another. It's suspicious the way that it's been put in the ears. The gun is old and rusted. Looks like it's been there for years, maybe even decades. And it's a 22, the kind of gun the murderer used to kill Jeanette and Harvey Crew. You'd only hide it if you didn't want it found. It's hard to tell what it's doing there or where it came from. So Tony Clark does what seems the right thing to do. I found it and then I rang... He um, rings the local police. That night um, I rang Robbie Smith, one of the local cops in Tuakau that I know, and I said to Robbie, look, I've found this. And he said, oh, you want me to come out and pick it up? I said, yeah, well, I think it's worth looking at. And um, he rang, he was on duty that night in the station, and he rang me back about an hour later and said to me, he's the one that told me, he said, walk me through exactly where you found it. So I walked him through from our gateway. He was on Google Earth, because the police one's very accurate compared to the one we get. Funny that. And um, I walked him through the fences and the gates and past the, the sheep yards and everything else and the hay barn and that. And I said, when you get to the next fence down there, you'll see a little, yep, I can see the dam there. I said, well, it's on the other side of the dam. On, on the eastern side of the dam there, down in there, and he clicked on that and clicked on the crew matters and said it was 3.8 kilometres away a crow flies from there to here. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, you've got to think the area where it's found is the perfect place to dispose of a murder weapon. You access it down a quiet gravel road. There's a spot to park, jump the fence, get to the dam quickly and get out. Yeah, and let's face it, um, if this dam had never washed out 12 years ago, and we'd never bought this block of land off the neighbours, and we'd never put this dam back in and reinstated it for stock water, um, you'd never have found it. It'd still be there. So the local cop has picked up the gun, an intriguing gun to say the least. After visiting Tony Clark, we pop in to see Des Thomas. He already knows about this strange find, and we want to know what he makes of it all. Jeez, you've been walking around in the farm, you got to have to eat. I'll have a biscuit. Of course, he puts the kettle on. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, 
Subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. Today on Newsable, why women's refuge isn't so keen on New Zealand following in Australia's footsteps when it comes to investing $1 billion towards tackling family violence. Plus, inside the inquest into the death of toddler Lockie Jones. And have you had a shocker job interview? Wait till you hear some of these clangers. And one of them involves someone having to moo like a cow. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. Des Thomas, remember, is the brother of Arthur Thomas, who was originally convicted of the crew murders and then pardoned in 1980. He's pretty sure the police have no desire to solve this case, so he's bloody interested in a development like this. Is there anyone who's connected with that farm in any way, like who worked on it or...? Well, like in those days you had rabbit shooters and that two contractors come in, so a lot of people would still know that the pond was there. Yeah, yeah. If somebody has dumped it there deliberately, which is likely, isn't it, because it was the way it was hidden and things, they've gone there with the specific intent of hiding that rifle, haven't they? They've, they've parked on the road. Well, I don't know. I never, I never saw it there. But mm. if, when you talk to Tony, yeah, he says that that was deliberately. Yeah. He said that right from day one. That's been deliberately put in there. Yeah, because yeah. it was poked yeah. down in the bloody. In yeah. The, in the dirt, so yeah. Yeah. you know, it wasn't just apparently from what he said, it wasn't just fired in there. No, he said it was barreled down, mm. and he said the butt was broken as if someone had stood on it to push it down yeah. into the mud. So I'm saying, if somebody, somebody must have had knowledge. Yeah, um, you want the chocolate oh, one? I would love one. Thank you. Mm. Oh, yeah, Des has figured out that you shouldn't talk about injustice on an empty stomach. It's easy to get drawn into conversations yeah. with Des about the case. He's engaging and smart. He carts water and firewood for a living, driving trucks all over the district. He's not a big man, but he's powerfully built with hands that have worked a hard life. He's going to hate me saying this, but you could easily imagine him being a hard-edged lawyer or investigator in another life, wearing a suit and making a living from his curiosity, intelligence and tenaciousness. You've read a lot. Yeah, I'm still learning. And his cynicism. He is that in buckets. We might have been in Russia. Unsurprisingly, given what his family's been through, he's especially cynical about the police. This conversation is about that review to end all reviews led by Detective Superintendent Lovelock. And that's what I keep getting puzzled about, is that this was the report that was to end all reports, but... Well, well, it is if all the Thomases were dead, hey. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't let the laugh mislead you, because for Dez, this is deadly serious. He spent decades analysing the crew murders. And to him, in spite of the initial police investigation, in spite of the Royal Commission, in spite of that review to end all reviews, there's still so much that doesn't make sense. I said to them, if the police are meant to be so transparent, why don't they just bloody send me the whole documents unedited? Take the Axel evidence. Remember it was a major part of the case against Arthur Thomas. The axle that was found under Harvey's body and had apparently been used to weigh down both bodies. It's driving Des crazy that the police still think it came from the Thomas farm. You can tell by how often he brings up the axle evidence just how much it gets on his goat. Well, the axle never came off the Thomas trailer, had nothing to do with the Thomas family. The axle, regard to that axle and the stub axles, they could have really made. 
there are mountains of evidence and counter evidence about the axle. But here are the essential elements. So the police case is that the axle came from a trailer on Arthur Thomas's farm. In Pukikawa. The trailer had been worked on by a local handyman in the district called Rod Rasmussen. Rasmussen did that work, replacing the axle, in 1965, five years before the murders when the Thomas's father, Alan, owned the farm. Mr Thomas Senior is dead now, but he gave evidence that when Rasmussen did the work, he kept some of the old parts from the trailer. Well, Rasmussen would have still had them. Rasmussen's evidence is that he returned everything. Rasmussen had to say, which he did say, was that all the parts went back to the Thomas farm. Yeah. So which one of them is right? Because it's crucial. Those old parts, called stub axles, were once attached to the axle that weighted down the bodies. These stub axles are essential because the police say they found them on Arthur Thomas's farm, linking him to the murders. There's no evidence. If I sat down with, with Lovelock here, we could show him that there's no evidence whatsoever that that points to the Thomas farm in regard to that axle and stuff because, you know, we can we can prove there that Rasmussen and, and Johnson had the stub axles with both of them on on the um, 15th of October and, it, and the stub axles weren't found to the 20th. Okay, that's pretty dense, but this stuff matters, not because of the detail, but because it gives you some insight into why Des Thomas reacts to the police the way he does. Johnston is Len Johnston, the detective who says he found the stub axles on Arthur's farm. Des is accusing him of planting them there. Big call. But here's the thing. Johnston is the same cop who planted the bullet cartridge, the evidence that led to Arthur Thomas's conviction. And there's something suspicious about how he managed to find the stub axles in the dump on Arthur's farm. He jumped off the bank and landed on two stub <laughs> Well, you have a look in your shop, in your bloody sock drawer. It's hard to find two matching bloody socks sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's just, this is quite a big farm dump. Yeah. And, and if they were chucked in there in, in um, 1965, there would have been five years of household yeah, of and farm rubbish yeah. on them, yeah. you know? Yeah. One would have been here and one would have been yeah. here. But Johnson was able to jump off the bank yeah. and hit them. So the die was cast for Arthur at that point. Oh, shit, yeah. It's a pretty serious allegation. But Des Thomas thinks it's no coincidence that the cop who planted the cartridge is the same cop who found the stub axles in Arthur's farm dump. If the police were going to plant the, the, um, a vital piece of evidence, the shell case, at the crew house from the Thomas rifle, surely it's not going to worry them to go and plant some stub axles in his, in his tip, is it? We can't put Des Thomas's allegation to Johnston. He's dead. Which doesn't help with Des's frustration. And I get that, because he's had decades of not being listened to. Decades of being wound down by injustice. Lynette Stevens gets it too. So the police just didn't seem to worry about that. They're not worried about us. They just don't care about us. She's also been on a mission to get heard, writing email after email. She copies me into some of them. They arrive in my inbox screaming with red-hot rage and exclamation marks and words in full caps with subject lines like ridiculous and failure by worksafe, and explanation please, and guns. Her digging has uncovered some really amazing nuggets of truth. But when it comes to her central theory, I'm struggling. We pretty much know that Carl Lobb has been protected by them. Yeah. 
So that's what it boils down to, isn't it? You think that that Carl Lobb has been protected by the police because of his involvement with the crew case. Yep. Yeah, like I said, I'm struggling. I don't know if I buy it. But I'm not the only one she's tried to convince. She's talked to so many people, gone to so many lengths, pushing people for answers until they push her away. Tell them not to come in. Get this, for example. She even meets Don Brash. There is a reason. As well as being a high-profile and controversial former politician, he's previously been interested in other miscarriage of justice cases. So there's kind of some logic to it. But listen to how Lynette describes her contact with him and how it all spins out of control. It's an illustration of how she eventually seems to fall out with everyone. Because Don Brash came to our place um, in 2016. How did that come about? How did that come about? He was a friend of mine on Facebook and we were talking about things and he said he was most interested and he would like to come in and he started talking with my sister whose surname is Hecky. And I was defending Don Brash at the time, saying that he can't be a racist because everyone was going on about him. I've got lots of Maori friends on my Facebook page and they've been wonderful. Oh, Lynette, what are you having a friends with that racist for? And I said, well, he's been nice to my sister, so I'll give him credit until he does anything bad. I came here and he sat here and had a cuppa and he's really nice. And then um, he put in an email to us afterwards that he was going to tell his friend Judith Collins Judith Collins was Minister of Justice at the time. And then she just ignored us. I had to get New Zealand Post to do an investigation into why my tracked and traced mail didn't reach her office. And in the end it did, but she said nothing about any of that. She just said she can't help with our brother's case. So, um, but Don Brash put in writing that he thinks that the police investigation into Murray's death was shoddy. So it sounds like she'd got Brash on side which makes it hard to understand how she then falls out with him. As is often the case, she reads into things, draws connections, gets offended, and then goes on the attack. In the Brash case, she thinks he was acting as some kind of secret agent for Judith Collins. I like Lynette. I feel sorry for her. But sometimes she's her own worst enemy. Anyway, things quickly deteriorated with Brash. And he started getting really nasty and saying, oh, you just don't know anything. And he, he actually called me ignorant in front of everyone and I was really peed off with him, actually. So he blocked me and unfriended me after that. And I got a... The point is, Lynette anyway, never feels I'm listened to. And nor does Des. But when the Lovelock Review began in 2010, you can imagine that on some level, somehow, Des must have had hope that finally his family name could be cleared. But then, to rub salt in the wound, the result of that review to end all reviews comes out. Today, police released a review of the 1970 crew homicide file. It's July 2014, and this is Police Commissioner Mike Bush in a clip posted to YouTube. The setting is like the usual police press conference, formal and crisp, with the police insignia on the back wall. But he's sitting on his own, talking to the camera, so he looks a bit nervous or rehearsed as he delivers his speech. The reason we undertook this review was to provide answers to Rochelle Crude about the death of her parents 44 years ago. Because of the passage of time, we unfortunately aren't able to provide all of the answers to these enduring questions. But thanks to the review team's work, we now have the best understanding possible of this case. The best understanding possible of this case? Really? 
For a start, it's not solved. Lovelock's team concludes it's not possible to identify the killer. What it does do is rake over evidence pointing back to the Thomas family. Des Thomas is furious, and so is his sister, Margaret Stuckey. Lovelock has actually left this case worse off now than what it's ever been. To them, it's like even though their brother Arthur Thomas has been officially cleared since 1980, the police are still only interested in evidence implicating the Thomas family. To the Thomases, it seems like the police don't even look at new evidence pointing in other directions. Like what happened to that rifle found on Tony Clark's farm? Well, the short answer is, not much. About a year after the local cop picked it up, the police returned the gun to Tony Clark. And even though, A, it's the type of weapon used to kill the crews, and B, it's found just down the road from their farm, the police just don't seem very interested. Well, what worries us is when the police get a lot of this evidence, they don't go and investigate it because, see, they've already put their time and effort planting and manufacturing evidence against Arthur. He's been pardoned, but they are not interested in looking seriously at who murdered the crews. So when it comes to this new evidence, what you're saying is the police don't, don't deal with it properly because it doesn't fit what they exactly. say happened. It is hard to disagree with him. Especially when it turns out there's another gun the police seemingly ignore. Actually, more than one. That roller coaster ride? It's reached the bottom of the first dip. But it ain't over. That's next time on The District. The District is a Stuff Circuit podcast series. Written and produced by Toby Longbottom, Paula Penfold, and me. Toby also edits the series. Phil Johnson and I recorded the sound blame me for the dodgier bits the final sound mix was provided by David Liversidge at Radiate Sound archival sound recordings from the RNZ collection at Nga Taonga Sound and Vision and now music is from Audio Network Mark Stevens, Patrick Crudson and Keith Lynch are the executive producers we had digital help from Suyun Son and Alex Liu you can find out more about the podcast series and the characters in this story over at stuff.co.nz. Have a look at the website where you can find extras, including some wonderful archival photographs. Oh yeah, and some recipes. We spent so much time in farmhouse kitchens, we thought we should share the love. I'm Eugene Bingham. Thanks for listening.